Well, welcome to church. What an encouraging story, people being eaten by worms. <laughs> I uh, introduced myself earlier, but if you weren't here, I'm Brandon. I serve as one of the pastors here. Uh, I'm so excited to have with me today my friend Hannah Anderson. Uh, if you're new to SOMA, uh, I am one of three elders uh, that serve our church, and one of our main responsibilities is to oversee the kind of capital T teaching of the church, the doctrine of the church, and so often uh, one of us will preach, but we love to be able to also create space. The Bible tells us to teach one another, and, uh, and we see in the Bible uh, lots of different kinds of teaching happening, including sermons, and, uh, and that's done by gifted men and women um, who are using their gifts to build up the body. And so we love to be able to create space for gifted, godly men and women who are not elders to come and to teach. And so I have the privilege today to co-teach with Hannah. Uh, Hannah was a visiting teacher here uh, during a lot of COVID. She taught mostly uh, virtually from uh, the safety of Virginia, uh, where her family lives, her and her children and her husband, Nathan. Hannah uh, has been a ministry for a long time. We've been friends for a long time. She is an author uh, we used her book, Turning of Days, last year as kind of a spiritual formation resource for the church, and it's just a great uh, theologian, a great teacher, and so I'm really thankful, Hannah, to have you here with me this morning. So let's welcome Hannah uh, as we teach together. Yep. So I'm going to uh, start us off here, and then Hannah will teach for a bit, and then I'll close this uh, at the end and, and bring us into communion. So uh, a couple of weeks ago, my family was traveling down to Florida. So my wife's family for decades has gone down to Destin, which I think is the closest, and I'll say real beach, because if you're from Michigan, your beaches don't count as real beaches, um, just saying. But like the real beach, there's like an ocean, I know, there's like a real ocean, right? Like oceans, beaches go together. So we drove down to Destin, as we do uh, every year in the Panhandle, and as we are coming down, the, the, the most famous stretch of the Panhandle, if you've ever been to the, the Destin, Panama City area, is 30A. When you hit 30A, you know you're officially kind of in Destin. It's the beach uh, kind of road there. And as we turn the corner to go east uh, towards Panama City, towards the place where we were staying, on this big three-story condo to my left, I see this huge flag uh, sitting on this condo. And these flags were everywhere. I don't know if you've seen this uh, flag. I want to throw up here on the screen. Right. So we're not talking about politics today. Calm down. But I just want to say, it is not an easy time to be named Brandon. <laughs> my first name, my given name is James. It's my dad's name. My middle name is Brandon, so I go by my middle name, Brandon. And my mom was in the first service. I was named Brandon, actually, because it was a character in a romance novel that my mom was reading while she was pregnant with me. It's super awkward to talk about, especially with your mom in the first service. But it's, it's hard to be Brandon or... It's also hard, like there's lots of these names, these cultural memes that just become a thing. My mother-in-law, le legitimately, her name is Karen. Hard to be a Karen right now. Hard to be a Chad right now, right? Hard to be a Becky. Uh, I feel bad if your name is Felicia, right? Like there's just these names. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, like Google, like there's names. And they, they, they kind of become stand-ins or stereotypes or caricatures for larger uh, cultural like proxy conversations that are happening, often even culture wars that are happening around us. Uh, now, please do not take it. Somebody took a picture in the first service of me with a flag behind me. Please don't do that and then say, my pastor was leading us in a chant. This, I don't want to give you ideas, but like, don't do that kind of stuff. Okay. Um, our story this morning features somebody who, if they were living today, would have a similar kind of cultural meme, a guy named Herod. And, and I want to introduce you to Herod because Herod is a, is a key figure in ancient Palestine. But if you're reading the Gospels and you're reading the book of uh, Acts, there's a whole family of Herods. 
And, uh, and I want to just kind of set the context for Herod because it's important that you understand where Herod came from and, and the shaping influence, shaping influences on his life, uh, the lives of the, Her- the Herodian family, but also then how that shaped the life of the disciples in the early Christian community because it's significant. I don't know if you've ever been to therapy uh, before counseling, but um, one of the first things you do in, if you go to therapy is they ask you maybe to do a genogram or, or to kind of map out your family of origin, like tell us about your parents, tell us your story. There's this recognition in therapy that like who you are, you don't just show up in a vacuum, right? That you're present and the person that you are is shaped by uh, your past, right? And we talk a lot in emotion and spirituality here about in order to move forward, we have to be able to go backwards, uh, to really understand the shaping influences in our lives so that we understand how we show up in the present. And that's what I want to do for just a moment. I want to throw this slide on the screen. Um, Hannah calls this keeping up with the Herodians, which I thought was hilarious because it is like, it is like the Kardashian family tree, right? Like these, there's a lot of crazy going on here. If you ever seen the crown or game of thrones, I mean, that is the Herodian family. So I went all crazy nerdy history first service and I just probably should go apologize next week to them. I'm going to cut it down a little bit because I have some other things I want to talk about. But basically there's a massive, a lot of like subtext and background to what happens uh, with Herod. Uh, basically, there's a big revolution. It's called the Maccabean Revolt. You can study it and read about it. Maybe you learned about it in history. Hanukkah is the celebration of that. And, and then there's all kinds of things that happen. But basically, there's a man named Herod who comes to essentially rule Judea, Samaria, and Galilee. He becomes the most powerful Jewish monarch in the Roman period. He rules from about 40 BC, so right before Christ, to literally, he's buried, he dies, and he's buried just weeks or months after Jesus. So there's some overlap here uh, with, he's called Herod the Great, the King of the Jews. He's a, he's a man who is a practicing Jew, but um, he's deeply loyal to Caesar, to the way of Rome. The Jews actually kind of viewed him as a traitor. He was one of the wealthiest men alive at the time, tons of power. Uh, he's really known for his building programs. He, he built these massive fortresses. Um, he, he rebuilt and kind of beautified the Jerusalem temple. Uh, he built these fortresses and temples to the imperial cult that if you go to uh, what's, what's ancient Palestine now, uh, Turkey and some of these places, you can still see a lot of uh, Herod's fortresses uh, today. He was a super violent man. Right? That's the thing you need to know about Herod the Great more than anything else. He was violent. He executed one of his wives. He executed three of his sons. He executed a daughter, an uncle. I mean, super, super paranoid uh, guy. He is the Herod, Herod the Great. If you look at this family tree, there at the top. He is the guy that's there when Jesus is born, who seeks out Jesus and slaughters all of the children. That is Herod the Great and is a great representation. Now, he has some children through a number of different princesses and significant uh, women there. Um, and three of them come to rule. So again, lots that we could talk about there. The one that you read about the most in the Gospels is Herod Antipas right there. Um, he is the one who divorces his first wife, marries, you can look down the family tree there and see that heart, marries his niece Herodias. Um, and that's the one that John the Baptist criticizes and eventually leads to John getting his head cut off, right? Herodias has a brother, and this is the guy we're gonna see today, Herod Agrippa I. Agrippa I was raised and educated after uh, his grandfather kills his father. Again, just really twisted stuff. He's, ra- he, he's educated and he's raised in Rome. And in Rome, he meets uh, Caligula and then Claudius, who would become future emperors of the Roman Empire. And so Herod is essentially given uh, a governorship. He's what's called a client ruler. He governs over uh, Judea, Samaria, Galilee. 
And he is the one in the story who executes James and who uh, imprisons Peter, mostly for political reasons. He's trying to curry favor with the Jewish religious and cultural elites. And it's his son, then if you go down, Herod Agrippa, Berenice, Felix, Drusilla, they're all going to show up later in Acts when Paul's on trial on his way to Rome. So this is the story. It's a crazy story, and there's lots that we could say about it, but um, I, I kind of want to just summarize this. I want us to see, like, if there was a meme, like when Herod shows up in the Bible, there's that dun-dun-dun, you know, it, it, it's tragic, and there is, there is a, we could call it a spirit of Herod that we want to look at in more detail as we think about how that impacted the early Christian community. It's right that when we come back to Acts 12 and we're looking at even the opening line of this chapter, we read about that time King Herod violently attacked some who belonged to the church and he executed James. And if you are tracking with who Herod is and you lived at this time, your response is, of course he did because that's what Herods do. We, we just have this legacy and this history of violence and rule and abuse of power. And what's really interesting about this text is we almost have a microcosm of all of this. We can, we can see in detail the way not just Herod Agrippa behaves as an individual, but this thing that we're going to call this morning the, the spirit of Herod, a way of being in the world we see him violently attacking the church. And so, so there's this kind of violence that's pervasive within the spirit of Herod. And it's a violence almost that is nonsensical. It, it doesn't really have a purpose. We, we just read that he comes after James and he executes James. And it's, it's what we might call this random violence or something that doesn't immediately make sense. And we see this in our world. I know um, we're reeling even with the violence that we see in Ukraine now. There's, there's a sense of watching that. And, and at one level, we're shocked and we're overwhelmed, but, but we're also like, but this doesn't make any sense. This is just a spirit of violence. But when Herod moves in this direction, he also sees that his violence gets him what he wants. He acts in a violent way, and it pleases the Jews, and he says, well, that worked. Let's do that again. And so he takes the further step of arresting and imprisoning Peter and setting up a trial. Now, even within this movement of the spirit of Herod, there's this, this really interesting observation about using the language of justice in a remarkably unjust way. He, it, within the context of prison and trial, and it's like, well, there's going to be some kind of evaluation of whether Peter did something wrong. No, there isn't. This is complete abuse of power, and, and I think we can also recognize that in the world we live in today, that, that the language of ju justice or, or law and order is often manipulated for whoever is in power and wants to use that justice system the way that makes sense for them. And so there's this twistedness in the sense of Herod is entrusted to create a just community, and what does he do? 
He uses the very system that is to provide safety and security for the people as a way to attack and as a way to manipulate. And what's fascinating is because he's, he moves th through the world that way, because that's the way he thinks and acts toward other people, he also becomes very paranoid and wary and suspicious because if he's going to treat other people that way, he just assumes that they're coming after him the same way. And so we see this kind of build up and ironically, a militarization around Peter. Peter's one guy, but what does Herod do? Verse four says he assigns four squads of four soldiers to guard him. There is this kind of security, this necessity to make sure that nothing happens. And he's going to do that through a show of force, this disproportionate show of force. So he puts Peter in prison, he sets out the guard, and as the text tells us, God steps in. And he sends an angel to deliver Peter. Peter is returned to the church, and he is saved. But Herod's story doesn't end with Peter there. Because as soon as he finds out that Peter has, has escaped, Herod responds with this volatility, this vindictiveness, this vengefulness. And he goes and he interrogates those guards, those, that power source he had trusted in. And what does he do except execute them? But... What's probably to me one of the most telling statements in verse um, 19, it says that he interrogated the guards and ordered their execution. Then Herod went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. It didn't mean anything. He went on with his life. 16 people are murdered for something they did not do, and he just moves on. And so he goes on seemingly untouchable and untouched. And I think if you see this, even within our world today, we, we live not in the time of Herod, but Herod is everywhere. There is this spirit that is alive in the principalities and powers of the air that abuses power, that reacts violently, that seems uncontrollable. And so there's this question of, why is Herod this way? I mean, we look at a conflict maybe in Ukraine, and, and if you're anything like me, I've watched that, and I've just had my mind boggled. Who makes these kinds of choices? Who wakes up one day and says, I'm going to go harm my neighbor? And so there's this sense of trying to wrestle with the spirit of Herod, and we're looking for reasons, we're looking for explanations. And if you've read anything about these geopolitical conflicts, it's so much of us wrestling with, why is this happening? Why is this person behaving this way? You know, as Brandon set up, there is this piece of generational cycles. There is this sense of inheriting certain norms, and if you had been raised in a violent political dynasty, you probably would have accepted it as normal too. And so there's a sense of entitlement and privilege as the ruling class, a detachment that doesn't think about the individual, that thinks only about the political means and ends. And you could just kind of say, well, that's the way things work. If you want to stay in power, you have to have the stomach for it. This is what it means to be a ruler. 
And there is a sense that, yes, our backgrounds and our nurture give shape to the choices that we make and the way we view the world, but there's also the truth that we choose to perpetuate those backgrounds. We choose and embrace and step into certain spirits, and it is within us and our nature that we will move in these patterns. And I think there's something of a spiritual root here that shows up at the, the latter part of the chapter. When Herod moves to Caesarea and he, he comes basically to what is a political rally, the scripture tells us he came out to give a speech. He's dressed in royal robes. And the crowd see him and they cry out, it is the voice of God and not of man. And he set up in this, this mass gathering as a deity. And I think there's something here for us to recognize, too, that in this dynamic, it's very easy for us to judge leaders that behave this way, but there must be an enabling and a complicity. There must be people who are willing to worship them as godlike. There must be people who cry out, we will worship you. And what's fascinating about this account within the scripture is we actually have extant um, information backing this up. The historian Josephus wrote about this day, and he gives a very similar account. And I just want to read it for you because I found it so telling that we, we hear the interpretation from Luke of what happened and what was the crisis point behind this moment, but Josephus saw it pretty much the same. This is what Josephus writes. Now, when Agrippa had reigned three years over all Judea, he came to the city of Caesarea. There he exhibited shows in honor of the emperor. And on the second day of the festival, Herod put on a garment made wholly of silver and of a truly wonderful texture and came into the theater early in the morning, at which time the silver of his garment was illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays upon it. It shone out after a surprising manner and was so resplendent as to spread a horror over those that looked intently upon him. At that moment, his flatterers cried out that he was a god, and they added, Be merciful to us, for although we have hitherto reverenced thee only as a man, yet we shall henceforth own thee as a superior to mortal nature. Upon this, the king did neither rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. But as he pre presently afterward looked up, he saw an owl sitting on a certain rope over his head and immediately understood that this bird was the messenger of ill tidings, as it had once been the messenger of good tidings. And he fell into the deepest sorrow. A severe pain also arose in his belly and began in a most violent manner to make him sick. What the scripture says is, at once an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and died. And here is kind of the revelation behind the animating force that makes Herod, Herod. Yes, it's nurture. Yes, it's growing up with violent norms. But at the root of the spirit of Herod is a confusion about who is God and who is not God. At the root is a refusal to give God the glory. At the root is a spirit that is lifted up in pride, a spirit that who has forgotten who God is. And that pride leads to 
all kinds of evil. It is the source of the violence. It is the source of the abuse of power. It is the source of the apathy and the twisting of justice to serve his own ends. And it is the same temptation that Lucifer himself faced when he said, I will be like the Most High. I will be lifted up. It's the same temptation that Pharaoh faced. It's the same temptation that Nebuchadnezzar faced when he was humbled as a beast of the field because he had lifted himself up and did not give glory to God. And it's a human temptation. It's the temptation of the garden. When the serpent comes and says to the first man and the first woman, you will be like God. Take this, do this, your eyes will be opened. You will have knowledge, you will be like God. And it's what Paul writes in Romans 1, that although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. They did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God. And if you know Romans 1, you also know that after that statement, there's just this cascading list of all the sins and all the ways that we harm and corrupt each other. All of the evil to the degree that Paul even says that we lose a knowledge of what is right. So if you look in confusion at the behavior of a Herod or a Hitler or a Putin, and you say, how can you not understand this evil? The scripture tells us that's exactly what happens to our minds when we are lifted up in pride and we do not worship God as God. We lose our ability to distinguish what is right and what is wrong. And so I hope as you see this and you feel the weight of the spirit of Herod that's in force in the world, that the question that comes is, well, what can face this down? What can take this on? Are, are we just left to this? Are we, is it the human condition to just cycle through this awfulness? What is the antidote to this pride that lives not just inside our rulers, but inside of our own hearts? What can overcome this? I think the question is, who can overcome this? Who can meet the spirit of Herod and overcome it? And Luke, who wrote Acts, in his gospel, in Luke 4, tells us that it's Jesus Christ. Because just like the serpent came to the first Adam and the first Eve in the garden and tempted them to be like God, the serpent comes to the second Adam, Jesus, in the wilderness. And he brings the same temptation. And he shows him the kingdoms of the world. And he says, I will give you their splendor and all their authority. And isn't this exactly what Herod was grasping for? Isn't this exactly what all of our political maneuvering is grasping for? The splendor and all the authority of the world. And Satan says to Jesus, if you will worship me, all this will be yours. And in that moment of temptation, the second Adam says, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And so it is the spirit of Christ that humbly submits himself to the Father that overcomes the spirit of Herod. It is the spirit of Christ that Paul writes in Philippians 2 does not consider equality with God as something to be exploited, but instead he empties himself in humility. 
And he assumes the form of a servant. He takes on the likeness of a humanity. And when he has become a man, he humbles himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. And because of that humility, God, who is God, raises him, exalts him, gives him a name that is above every other name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. He will be worshipped, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And it is the spirit of Christ that overcomes the spirit of Herod. But if we come back to Acts 12, you don't see Jesus there, right? Herod's there. Peter's there. The church is there. Where's the spirit of Christ? It's not in the text. You're right. It's not in the text because it's in the subtext. And there's this beautiful thing that is happening in chapter 12 where the mirror, the shadow, the story of Christ is being acted out behind the scenes. In contrast to the spirit of Herod, the spirit of Christ is being embodied by Peter. And Peter is invited to act out the death and resurrection of Jesus, the story of a suffering servant. Look what's happening within the text. In chapter 12, there is this literary function where it is almost a retelling of the crucifixion and the resurrection story. The timing is the same. It's about 10 years later, but it's Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And if you've ever had a traumatic event in your life, you've had a loss of someone, you know when that calendar cycles round, you may not necessarily remember the date, but your body remembers. And you come into a season and you're like, this is a moment. I remember what this means. And so for the early church to have James executed in that time, and then to have Peter falsely arrested for trying, because a political leader is trying to please the Jews. Here is this echo. The innocent is falsely arrested during this season. There is this beautiful cycle of redemption, though, because at the crucifixion, Peter is trying to do everything possible not to be arrested. And in this moment, Jesus invites him into something and says, hey, you want to try that again? Let's see how this goes a second time. The prison is sealed just as the tomb was sealed. A strong guard is placed. The disciples are huddled together in fear. Peter sleeps. And then he is told to quick get up. Just as our Savior was asleep in death and then is raised to life. An angel comes as part of the deliverance. The news that he has been delivered from death is taken to an unlikely messenger. It's taken to Rhoda. And in the gospel, it's taken to Mary Magdalene. And both are not believed. They come with this message that the one they had longed for is alive and their witness is met with skepticism. And the people tell them, you're crazy. You don't know what you're talking about. The disciples have to come see for themselves to believe. They have to believe that the stone had been rolled away, that the gate had been opened, that the prisoner had been set free, that the chains of death had fallen off. And when they finally see and believe, they are commanded to take that news to others. And both Peter and Jesus go to another place. 
and the guards are left with the repercussions. Now, if you're like me and just like literary analysis, that might be enough. I love that beautiful gift of the text. But there's a point beyond this. And what we must recognize is that the Spirit of Christ is alive and present in the lives of his followers, overcoming the spirit of Herod. He is empowering them to act out the life that he lived in his humility in the face of threats and violence. In the face of those who would try to control and abuse them, he invites them into this story. And they live it out, repeating his victory. And right in the middle of the text, right in the middle of the chapter, Peter says this. Now I know for certain that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's grasp. And on one level, that was very literal. He has rescued me from what Herod wanted to do to me. But at another sense, God is also delivering him from the spirit of Herod. That the spirit of Christ animated in the way of Christ is releasing him from that very temptation that we all face. And he is setting him free from that spirit. Now, that's great. Great for Peter. Great for the disciples. Bad for Herod. What about for us? What is God inviting us to see in this story? This is not just a history lesson about how God worked in the past. There are invitations for us, ways that we need to see ourselves in this story and respond in repentance and faith. And so I just want to suggest there's lots of things that we could talk about here as invitations from God to us. And I don't want to presume to know what God's invitation is for you. I want to let the Holy Spirit be the Holy Spirit. But I do want to suggest two things that stuck out to us as we wrestle with this text. Two invitations for disciples of Jesus. One, I think it's very clear that we must work hard to resist the spirit of Herod. Right? We have to work hard now to resist the spirit of Herod. The spirit of Herod, as we said, can be summarized just with this rich biblical word called pride. Pride is this impulse that we have as human beings to put ourselves in the place of God, to play God in our lives, in the lives of other people. It's the impulse that wants to elevate myself above God and to say what Satan says of himself, I will. Right? It's all about me. It's all about the self. And we can do that on an individual level. We can do that as families. We, that becomes tribalism. We can do that as communities. We can do that as empires and countries. And when we see how toxic that is, right? How toxic it is for our own souls. How toxic it is, toxic it is for our communities, for countries, for peoples. C.S. Lewis, in his classic work, Mere Christianity, dedicates a whole chapter to what he calls the great sin, pride. And, and one of the dangers, I think, in reading a text like this, and Lewis points this out, and I think we need to hear this warning, is that we can look at this text and we can look at Herod and we could say, wow, what an evil guy. I'm glad I'm not like him. He's like my father. He's like fill-in-the-blank political leader. He's like my sibling or my child or whatever. Lewis says we need to resist that impulse. He says this, there's one vice of which no man in the world is free. 
which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty of themselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in other people. Pride leads to every other vice. It's the complete anti-God state of mind. And here's the key line at the end of his chapter. He says, if you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. So like, imagine in your mind, like if I were to say to you, who's the most prideful person that you know? I bet you could easily conjure up like an image of a neighbor, a coworker, a boss, you know, somebody in your family. And, and here's the crazy thing. Somebody else is probably maybe even in this room conjuring you in their mind right now. <laughs> Because we tend to lack self-awareness and a self-clarity about our own pride, our own self-righteousness. And we all know people who walk around as if they're the center of the universe, right? That is, that is what it means to be human. It is to be a self-referencing, selfish person. We see how that happens in Herod, but we often miss how it happens in our own lives. I came across this week uh, some warning signs of pride that a pastor put together that I thought were so helpful. And I just want to encourage you, you don't have time to go through all of these, but just illustratively, I want to give you a few of these. I want to throw these slides up. And if you want to snap uh, a photo or something, I want to encourage you like this week in your own time with God, in your own uh, conversations and missional community discipleship group, like I dare you to have this conversation with your spouse, with a roommate, uh, with somebody just to say, hey, do you see any of this in me? Like I want you to have that conversation with God. And then I want you to have it with other people. But notice some of these signs of pride. They're so subtle. And, and Lewis talks about how, you know, he says, like, take anger. One person can be so placed, he says, that their anger sheds the, bloods, the blood of millions. And another person is so situated socially that their, their anger only gets them laughed at. But he says it's the same mark on the soul that both of them manifest and it's that those, these little decisions to live into pride or to escape pride that actually turn us into Herod's. And so here's some things. I don't know if this resonates, but like not wanting to talk with someone or spend time with someone because they don't measure up. Thinking that I'm better than somebody else, this kind of elitist spirit, right? Jesus is blessed are the poor in spirit. This is kind of like a middle class or an elitist spirit where we look down on other people and we think they're not worth my time. Waiting to turn the conversation to highlight something you've done, right? We've all been there. You're in a conversation like, when's it coming to me? And you're trying to get your way in there to make sure. Feeling a good report from someone else's life threatens your worth. Hearing about someone else's problems and feeling better about yourself because it's not happened to you. Trying to serve God without prayer. Thinking pride is not that big of a deal for you. Not confessing sin until you're backed into a corner and confronted, gaslighting other people, calling into question whether or not, you know, you really did this, defending yourself, looking down on others, not listening, not eager to learn because you think you already know everything about the universe, right? I'm so glad I don't struggle with that. Um, not quick to admit wrong because it, you fear it may make you look bad or you may lose your position. I mean, these are all just different ways in which pride, which is so sneaky, can manifest itself in our lives. But the thing that I want you to hear more than anything else, like God hates pride. And he hates pride because it keeps us closed-fisted. It keeps us shut down from opening ourselves to receiving the joy and the love and the grace and the mercy of God. And then being able to share that. When I spend my time looking down on other people and being so full of myself, I can't be like Jesus who, with palms up, was emptied of pride and ready to receive from God. 
Lewis says, a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you can't see something that's above you. So I just want to ask the question as we come to like communion here in just a few moments, like how do I see this spirit at work in my own life? How do I see this at work in my soul? Where am I tempted towards pride? Where am I tempted to play God, to try to manipulate, coerce, even tempted towards violence with my words or literally with my fists? How do I see this at work in my marriage, right? My desire to have to be right, to be better than, or my opinion to have to be forced on somebody else. In my parenting, right? Like I see this so much in my parenting where I want my kids to just do what I tell them to do because I know it's right. I see the spirit of Herod alive in me as I try to parent my children, my relationships with my roommates, my interactions at church. I mean, church can be just a cesspool of pride, right? Like this is the space where it's like, if I'm not gonna be respected anywhere else, I'm gonna be respected in my missional community. I'm gonna be respected in my discipleship group. I'm gonna be respected in the church. So we need to confess that. We need to root that out. We need to turn away from that, repent of that. And that's what we practice each week communion, we confess. Yeah, like pride is there. And I need, to, I need to pray that God would root that out of me, would give me the awareness to see it and the power, the spirit of Christ to overcome it. The second thing quickly then is not only do we resist the spirit of Herod, that's the negative, but we want to learn to embody the humility of Christ, the spirit of Christ. I mean, that's what makes this community so powerful. It's what I long for us to be as a church, a community of humble people. I mean, the ones who make an impact in the book of Acts and throughout Scripture. If you go back to Moses, what was it that stood out about Moses that was celebrated in Scripture? It was his humility, right? And we can trace that all the way down to Jesus. The ones who make a lasting impact and are on the right side of history. We talk about being on the right side of history a lot. The ones who are on the right side of God's history in the book of Acts are not the Herods. They're the humble ones. John Dixon, in his book on humility, one of my favorites, called Humilitas, he says this simple definition, and I think this goes right along with Philippians 2. What is humility? Right? Because it's hard, like, how do you pursue humility without being arrogant? Right? Like, if you say, I'm trying to be humble, that sounds kind of cocky, you know? It's kind of ironic. How do we pursue humility in, in a truly humble way? He says, humility is the noble choice to forego your status, deploy your resources, or use your influence for the good of others before yourself. Humility, this is a really good point because we see this in Acts, humility is social. It's something we can only do and learn in community. It's not a private act of self-deprecation, banishing proud thoughts, refusing to talk about your achievements, and so on. I would call this simple modesty. Humility is about the redirecting of your powers, whether physical, intellectual, financial, or structural for the sake of others. It's being able to hold power in service of others. That's what Jesus did, right? The one who comes from heaven with all power, all glory, all sovereignty, holds his power, redirects his power for the good of others, right? And and we see this community here, a powerful community full of the Spirit of God with angels at their disposal. And what do they do? They don't fight back. They don't lead an insurrection. They don't return violence with violence. They simply gather together in the most powerful, subversive act of humility, and they pray. One of the marks of a community that's humble is we aggressively pray, right? Proud people don't pray because proud people fix their problems. Why pray when I've got money, when I've got social capital, when I've got power and influence? But to pray, 
to pray is to entrust yourself to God. It's to say, I don't need to make history happen. I serve a God who is making history happen. It's to entrust ourselves. And Peter learned this lesson. The early church learned this lesson. Peter, fast forward to the end of his life as an old man, he's, he's mentoring younger elders and pastors. And he says in 1 Peter 2, to this church of exiles, struggling under the violence of the early Roman Empire, he says, for to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he was suffering, he did not threaten. And here's the key. But he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. That's humility. Entrusting ourselves to God. And man, it takes a community. Humility is social. It takes community to learn this. We have to help each other out. We have to come together. We have to pray. We have to wait. We have to anticipate. We have to not grow cynical, right? You see so much cynicism in the story of Harry. He just gives up, and he's like, all I've got is politics. All I've got is power. But we need a different horizon of possibility in the church. We need to be a community that's humble and that continues to be open and anticipates the kingdom of God breaking out into the world. That's what creates humility. It's a people that know in the end, God will bring about his purposes and we need to wait on him. And so that's what I want to invite us into as we celebrate communion here together. We want to just take some time to acknowledge the ways that we struggle, that we are proud, right? That we are proud in our relationships, that we are proud in our relationship with God, right? We tell God, yes, I love you, I serve you, I worship you. But in reality, functionally in our everyday lives, we are trying to play God in our own souls and with those around us. And so this is just a time for us to confess our sin and to say, God, I don't want to do that. That's not the kind of person I want to become. And by your grace, I can be freed, I can be liberated to carry the spirit of Christ in me, to open up my hands, to stop trying to dominate, manipulate, coerce, fix, and just receive and surrender. God, make us more humble. And so let me just pray for us, and we'll take some time in communion to examine ourselves. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is a time for confession. This is a time for repentance. This is a time for us to cry out to God to do what we cannot do in our own power. Jesus lived the life that we couldn't live. He died the death that we should have died. He rose again to give us access to his spirit to overcome the spirit of Herod in ourselves first and then in our families and out into the world. And so we confess that and we receive again the confidence that he is with us and he is for us. He's present with us in communion in his, in his body broken for us, his blood shed for us. If you're not a follower of Jesus, as others come to take communion, we want to invite you to abstain. We're so glad that you're here. Maybe this is just a time for you to really reflect on where are you at with Jesus and what, is, what would it look like for you to come, become his disciple. So let me just pray for us and we'll take communion together. Father, thank you for this invitation. God, thank you for giving us these stories to show us the depth and the, complex, the, the complexity of evil in our world, the depth and the complexity of how pride manifests itself in such subtle ways that then lead to spectacular evil in the world. But God, we, we want to just first see that in our own hearts. So God, thank you for just giving us insight into the inner dynamics, the inner architecture of our hearts and what's happening inside each one of us, not Herod, but each one of us every day. God, this is the original sin. And so God, would you just open up our eyes to see it, to confess it, to bring it to you for forgiveness, for healing, for redemption. 
And then God, would you help us as we seek to resist that spirit? Would you give us your spirit? Would you just weave into our lives a humility that is not possible in our own strength, that is not possible in our own flesh, but only comes as your spirit is given room and space to permeate the core of our being and to transform us from the inside out. And God, would you just continue to work that humility into us individually, into us as a community? God, we ask for you to do what feels impossible. We know that all things are possible with you. So we pray these things in Jesus' name.